Macworld Podcast number 168 for August 26, 2009, sponsored by Macworld Superguides. What you need to know. Welcome to the Macworld Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Breen. The next version of Mac OS X, OS X 10.6 Snow Leopard, appears on store shelves this Friday, but we've got the scoop now. A lot of us have been running Snow Leopard for several weeks, but we're now allowed to speak about our experiences doing so. And that will take up the rest of this podcast as I speak with those Macworld editors who've had significant hands-on experience with Snow Leopard. Forget news and commentary, forget elaborate introductions, let's get to it. I'm joined by a stellar cast of Macworld editors who've had the opportunity to work with Snow Leopard over the past several weeks and several months for a couple of people. Now that the gag has been removed, we can talk, and talk we shall with editorial director Jason Snell. Hello. Senior editor Dan Frakes. Hi, Chris. Senior editor Rob Griffiths. Hello, Chris. And associate editor Dan Morin. Good day. Each of us has covered specific parts of Snow Leopard, and I'd like to talk about what we've discovered in these specific explorations, as well as get your take on how it feels to run Snow Leopard generally. So, Rob, I'm going to start with you because you're the go-to guy on the geekier elements of OS X and the person who's been working with Snow Leopard the longest. So what areas did you cover and what did you discover? Well, uh, thanks to Apple and my previously set vacation, I actually only discussed um, services, the new improved services interface in OS X uh, Snow Leopard. So that was my area of focus for write-up, but obviously I've been using it for for quite a while and and trying to get a feel for everything that they've changed. Right, but you're the resident uh, curmudgeon of all things OS X, and I know you've had some complaints in the past, and you've been using this for a while. So did Snow Leopard address any of those complaints? Well, Chris, I thought it had fixed some of my problems that I'd had with Leopard, but uh, one of the biggest ones on my list is the uh, inability of the Finder's Spotlight search results to be customized. That is, if you search, for instance, on you want to find all the files that are bigger than 200 megabytes on your hard drive, you can still do that, and you can do that in 10.5, but what you can't then do is actually display in the columns uh, the size of those found files. And because you can't display the size, you can't sort by size. So while it's possible to run a search that identifies all the large files on your hard drive, you can't actually see how big they are or put them in order of largest to smallest. Now, reading Apple's uh, page on the Snow Leopard, you'd think this was possible because they talk about fully customizable results in uh, Spotlight in the Finder in Snow Leopard. But uh, from what I've seen, the only thing you can customize is that you can add date created or date modified to the results, but you can't add size or any of the other fields that you could typically add to a normal finder window. So hopefully this is just a bug and it'll be fixed in 10.6.1 and it's not a feature, but I guess only time will tell. I have to think that that's a bug. I mean, when you open a search window and choose show view options from the tools menu, there's an option to show a size column, yet it's grayed out. I can't believe that they put it in there just to tempt us and then frustrate us. The area that I wrote about services has, it's always been one of my sort of, I've had a love-hate relationship with services because it's potentially incredibly powerful, but uh, over time it just becomes this bloated menu with hundreds and hundreds of items on it and it's next to useless. And in 10.4, there was a little app called Service Scrubber that sort of made it useful again. And then Apple uh, went and started signing all of their applications in 10.5, which is a way of, of securing the code and such that Service Scrubber no longer worked on those programs. Well, 
while in, in ten six Apple has basically totally rethought services, they're still available to do the same kind of things they've done, and services in existing applications will still work in ten six. But they now have a nicely organized menu, and more importantly, they have an interface where you can disable or enable any any service you do or don't want to use, as well as assign it a keyboard shortcut. So it's very much like the functionality of Service Scrubber is now built into the OS, and it works very well. Okay, could I see a show of hands around the table? Uh, who has used services routinely in the past? Okay, chirp, so one chirp. guy. <laughs> chirp. Well, so, that's, that was actually one of my points, is, is that it hasn't been well used because it, it was hard to find, it was very hard to use, and it was just a pain. Uh, and it was unfortunate because it had an amazing amount of potential. So now I think it actually uh, actually... Uh, think it's going to be one of the sort of the hidden gems of Snow Leopard because the other thing they did is it is now very easy for anyone to create their own services. So much like you could use Automator in the past to create your own Finder plugin, you can now use Automator to create a service that doesn't just work in the Finder but can work in any almost any application. So if you do a lot of stuff with iPhoto, you can create some iPhoto services. And even if you're not the type who wants to use Automator to create services, I think what we're going to see is a number of services coming out from third parties because uh, they'll be able to distribute them as standalone things that you just download in 10 4 and 10.5 services were associated with an application. So when you installed BB Edit, you got BB Edit's services were added to your huge list of existing services. In 10.6, it's theoretically possible for anyone to write a service that works with BB Edit and then distribute that service without having to distribute BB Edit. So it'll be interesting to see what happens. Well, what about the rest of you guys? Do you think this will cause you to use services more often or at all? Well, the other thing they did is and. Rob can step in here because I know he's found that they kind of broke it in the process is they put services in the contextual menus around the OS. And I've been using for several years, a little utility called ice coffee, which, uh, one of the things it does is makes it easier to open, uh, to open URLs in, in text areas. But another feature is that it puts the services sub menu in the contextual menu anywhere in the OS. So if you've got text highlighted in, say, an email message and you right-click, you'll get all your services right there. And so in, in Snow Leopard, Apple has actually added that same feature. They moved this, the services submenu. Uh, well, let's just say they kept in the application menu, but they also put a, another copy of it in the contextual menu. So I've been using it that way for years, and it makes it much more accessible, and you actually realize that it's there. But as Rob, Rob will tell you, the, the, and the other, and, and Dan sort of touched on this. The other big, big change that went with this is that the services menu is now actually contextual in the other sense. In that, yeah. if you have an image file selected, you will only see image-related services. Yeah, it used to be a really long list of things that were confusing and grayed out and irrelevant, and now it's all contextual, which is great because then you only see the things that you could possibly use, and it makes it much easier to use. So I think that's a big positive change. Yeah, right, the, right. Well, the problem we it, ran into. Uh, right. uh, Jason, I actually pinged Jason in our <laughs> chat the other night because I was trying to write up my section on services. And one of the things Apple touts on their very refined, their page of refinements in Snow Leopard is the ability to access services via a right click. Um, and I'm looking at all the applications and, and I don't see them. And so I asked Jason, I said, am I going crazy? And he looks and he doesn't see them. <laughs> it's like, hmm. And uh, so after They much, were there before. Yes. Uh, and things we can't speak about, they were there before. The... Uh, after much digging, what it turned out is that uh, at some point there is now a bug where the only services you will see in contextual menus belong to either third-party applications 
or there's a short list of services that are provided outside of application-provided services. Now, let me try to explain that a bit better. Um, Mail, for instance, there are services that say, like, take this text selection and make a new mail message out of it. That service is actually provided by mail, not by the operating system. You will not see any of those services in the contextual menu. There are other services, like, uh, I think, image rotation uh, is a service that's provided by the system. Those will show up in the contextual menu. So, uh, it's a little confusing, but right now the only way to make sure that you are seeing all of the relevant contextual services is to actually use the services menu in the menu bar uh, in the application menu, right. not the right. contextual now, menu. Now, I've let Apple know that we've discovered this bug, and hopefully they'll fix it. Um, and I think, Rob, it's safe to say that we're we're investigating some possible uh, like terminal commands you might be able to uh, – you might be able to issue in order to uh, fix this problem or at least temporarily fix it. And uh, if we figure that one out, I suppose you'll see it on macOS10hints.com. So uh, stay tuned for that. I just have to say thank God, guys, because I thought I was going crazy too. <laughs> no, not just you, Dan. No, they, dis- they disappeared, except in the services menu, they're still there. It's very strange. I got huh. them back, but I'm not quite sure what I did. I deleted a bunch of stuff, and then they reappeared, and I'm not quite sure what happened. So we're trying to figure it out. Well, I'm sure they'll fix all that by Friday. Sure, sure. <laughs> it only took them three years to make Spotlight work in the Finder again, right? Right, yeah, just a couple of days ought to do it. It's more of a ten six one opportunity. Yeah, yeah. So, Dan Frakes, uh, what did you look at, and uh, what did you think? I took a look at uh, the Snow Leopard installation process and uh, changes to system preferences. Uh, and the, the installation process is is interesting because they've been doing this for how long now? This is, what, uh, nine years, eight or nine years of, of OS X? And they've made the installer smart. Um, and, uh, you know, they've always had these options like uh, erase install or uh, or um, clean install, but they finally got rid of those and just made it a really simple installer that figures out what you need and for the most part does the right thing. Uh, and it also, I, I think the, the coolest part of the new installer is that it, it it lets you save space. You know, Apple touts this uh, this space saving aspect of Snow Leopard. They say it can install it can uh, save you what six or seven gigabytes of, of hard drive space. What they don't say is that they're not really saving you that so much as they are not installing it the, the way they used to. So under uh, under Leopard, for example, the default installation was a whole you know boatload of, of printer drivers. Under Snow Leopard. They don't install those by default, uh, and you get a much smaller uh, a set of drivers. But what, they, what Snow Leopard does, though, is that if you ever need them, it goes out on the net and downloads them for you. So that's one way that it's made the, ins- the ins- installation a lot smarter is that it's, it's cut down on what's installed by default. And then if you ever need something, whether it's uh, uh, printer drivers, QuickTime 7, uh, Rosetta, it'll pop up an alert and say, you don't have this, but we can get it for you. Would you like us to? And that saves a huge amount of hard drive space compared to past versions of the OS. Right now, what if I want to do a different kind of install rather than it just looking at it? Let's say, for example, I want to do a clean install. I want to get rid of everything or I want to do an archive and install. How do I do that? Well, those options don't really exist. There's no, there, in fact, there's really only one installation method, just a plain install on top of whatever I've got now uh, option in the installer itself. There is a, a workaround for an erase install, which is that uh, it, it tells you, okay, restart your Mac from the DVD, erase your hard drive using disk utility, and then install. So you get an erase install, but it's no longer an option where you click 
that option and it erases your hard drive and installs right on top, you know, right in one process. So there's really uh, all those options that you used to get under the, I think it was an option button that had uh, erase and install, clean install, regular, whatever. Those are now gone. Okay. So, and I, I know this is something that a lot of listeners are going to be interested in, but at what point in the installation does Snow Leopard check to be sure that you're installing on top of a copy of Leopard so that your $29 is fair and you shouldn't be paying more? Never. 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 That, never. never? Yeah, it hasn't for me and uh, nor for no, Jason, I don't believe. And No, we've, te- we've tested yeah. it on a few systems. We've tested it on a Tiger system. Just as Apple doesn't ask you for a serial number and, you know, and or like Microsoft does, uh, Apple also doesn't create a crippled disk that requires that you install some other OS and then upgrade on top of it. Um, it's a full install disk. And so it's the extension of that honor system that already exists for uh, – you know, your ability to buy the one pack and install it on as many systems as you want. The Apple says if you want to buy five, you should buy the family pack. But it's not actually enforcing that in any way other than its licensing agreement. And this is this is a new thing because it used to be that when Apple issued upgrade discs, for example, if you bought a Mac that came with Tiger within however many months of Leopard shipping, Apple would give you a $10 upgrade disk, and that one would require that you had Tiger already installed. So if, for example, your hard drive died and you got a new hard drive, you would have to install Tiger first, go through that whole process, then install Leopard on top of it. So, But only if, only if you had that, that, that weird uh, upgrade right, the, disk. the update disk, correct. Most right. people didn't ever see. Um, you know, so yeah. on one level, it's mm-hmm. the same as that, or it's different from that. On another level, it's not any different from what they've been doing with their OS updates, which never have checked right. for what version you've got. It's always been a fresh install. Right. It's so great. this is the Scouts Honor system. So if you're yeah. running Tiger, you should pay more. Well, yeah, if you're running Tiger, you're supposed to buy the Mac box set, but um, which includes iLife and iWork. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you f- technically, technically you have to, but you don't actually... Uh, you can install it without. You could just buy Snow Leopard and bypass Leopard. There's actually a very small number of systems that that is relevant for. There were only, um, I think, Intel Macs, which are required for Snow Leopard, only – it was less than two years, I think, that those yeah. Macs shipped with Tiger. So you know mm-hmm. there are some out there, but it's not a massive, it's not a massive number. It's a, right. it's a fairly limited group. Okay. And Dan Morin, what did you look at? Well, I was, you know, playing around with things in general, but the thing that sort of fell in my lap is um, <laughs> a relatively small feature that people might not know about, and that is malware protection. And you might say, gasp, there's malware on the Mac? <laughs> um, as it turns out, Apple has decided to uh, build uh, malware protection into Snow Leopard for the first time ever in the Mac OS. While not um, talking about it. Yeah, they don't yeah, want so, anyone well, to simultaneously not talking about. It. I mean, because shh. Um, so yeah, no, that yeah. Any happens. any positive PR to be gained from saying we have malware protection is offset, probably much more so by Apple saying that there might be malware on the Mac. So they just we had to ask them about it before they admitted that yes, there is some protection in there. It's it's kind of obliquely hinted at on the security page for Snow Leopard. If you go look there, it makes some vague claim about malware protection, but really, yeah, you're not going to honestly, you're not going to run into it that much and it's pretty modest for what it does. Now, you've all seen prior to this point you downloaded a file off the web somewhere and you go to launch it 
uh, or open the file and, you know, a dialog box pops up and says, you downloaded this file from the internet. Are you sure you want to open it? Um, that's been around, I think, through, I mean, the tiger or leopard. I don't remember where it first started uh, coming in. I think in, it's but- a leopard feature. Yeah, but I think. However, there is uh, some. I think when in when we talked to Apple, they said they that system had existed since Tiger. But I think the dialog box part of it, right, sort of front that tells facing you when, part of it, when you downloaded it and where you downloaded it and all right. that, I think was a lesson. So this feature. is the, the malware part of that is basically is just an extension of that system. Uh, so now, if you download a file that happens to complain, contain some sort of malicious software, then when you try to open it. Uh, a dialog box will pop up and warn you that this file could be potentially harmful. Um, and do you want to continue opening it? Do you want to stop opening it? Do you want to send it to the trash? Whatever. Um, and another big part of that is that they've extended this not just from Safari, which is Safari and Mail, I think, were the sort of primary places you ran into that before, um, but now extended that as well to third-party programs. So if you're downloading files in Firefox or uh, in other browsers, Mozilla, even Internet Explorer, I think, <laughs> or through other mail clients like Anuraj or Thunderbird, then you will also get this warning. Um, but it's, again, largely preventative. It's there to prevent people who might not know better from from opening a file that could be harmful in the same way that they sort of, sort of snuck in phishing protection in Safari. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very, very subtle, um, and, you know, most people will run into it and immediately probably go, oh, what? Cancel, you know, et cetera. Right. Um, and there's no way, for example, as far as we can tell, there's no way if malware does infect your computer, there doesn't seem to be any facility for then clean your computer i think you'll still need to turn to third-party software solutions for that right um and it's just checking what it knows you know it's a part of that disk disk mounting from a disk image or application launching process it has a file that it checks against that is the sort of signature of malware and i believe we found the file right dan and, and it's got what two things in it it's only got two definitions I in mean, it currently, but Apple has told us that they can extend that through software update. Right. Um, so basically there's a way to download new definitions. We have no idea how they're going to handle that. I mean we could be seeing everything from weekly definition updates to maybe they'll bundle in some definitions when they do a security update every you know four months or whatever. So a lot of that's going to depend on how well they handle the sort of service aspect of that. And they've taken a lot of criticism in the past for the speed at which they respond to security vulnerabilities uh, in their software. Um, because they're not always prompt about patching those or they're often very closed mouth about when they're what they're going to do about them. So it remains to be seen whether or not they'll take a similar approach in dealing with malware. Um, but in general, yeah, the system is just sort of – it's a very simple. It's kind of there to shield the user from the untamed wilds of the internet because if you uh, – the way it works essentially is that anytime you download a file from an internet, it puts a little like – check mark on it saying this file got, came from the internet um, and it doesn't actually check until you try to open that file uh, what, to see if it's malware or not so it's kind of a two part system um, but again it's very subtle, very simple and it seems unlikely that, that most users are going to run into it very frequently. I actually have a, uh, a, a different theory on another reason why they may be being quiet. I, you know, when I, when I found out that file had all of two definitions in it it was kind of like oh so this is really almost, not quite but it's almost just a, a panacea because if you think that you're running Snow Leopard and you have full malware protection, you can therefore go ahead and just surf with with abandon. Uh, I think you're going to get hit with something. So yeah, I, it'll be very interesting to see if they update that file because I, got, I there isn't much malware on OS 10, but there are clearly more than two definitions out there that need to be Absolutely. accounted for. 
well, we may see a dump on Friday of a whole bunch of other stuff, or not. I mean, these are it's also two of the high-profile ones. Um, it's the one that was in the pirated iWork installer that was floating around earlier this year, and then the Trojan, the other one was the RS Plug Trojan, which came out in 07, I think. Um, and so those are both ones that have made a fair amount of news, and I think that's, you know, <laughs> maybe not the timeliest response, but hey. Yeah, but if people are expecting that, um, you know, they – they are fully now protected because they're running Snow Leopard. It'll be interesting to see if Apple is is making a change in behavior or if this is, as you say, just sort of a, a first-line defense and, and we'll have two for the next six months. Well, on the upside, I mean, and Apple even said as much to us that this is not intended certainly to uh, obviate the need for third-party virus scanning software. It just sort of works in complement with them. Sort of, I mean, honestly, this is this is like a baseline, right? I mean, nowadays with the amount of malware that is out there, even though it's relatively little, uh, you know, it's kind of like how Steve Jobs described the kill switch for the iPhone applications. You know, it's it would be irresponsible of us not to have something, even if we don't expect there to be a problem. Right. Now, Jason, you wrote the Snow Leopard review that can be found right this instant on Mackerel.com, and so you have the big picture. So it's let's start right now. It is. It is right so, over there. So let's talk about performance, as that's a feature that a lot of people are going to be interested in. Can you feel that extra performance when you're running Snow Leopard on a Mac? Well, I think I can, but you know that that's always the question: is is you know perception is not always reality. Sometimes you're just, uh, it feels snappier, right? And people always say, oh, wow, it feels snappier. And sometimes it really is snappier. And sometimes the act of going through and running a system update and having it throw certain things away and replace them with new things and clean out some of the junk just as a a matter of that install uh, makes it faster. And then it slows back down. So we had the the guys in the Macro Lab uh, run some tests on three different systems, an iMac, a MacBook Pro, and a Mac Pro running... Uh, Snow Leopard and Leopard, and we ran the same tests. And, you know, I think we ran more than a dozen tests, and basically half of them are faster uh, between, you know, mostly between about 110% and 140% of the of the speed. So, you know, faster. Um, one test was about double, but mo- mostly it's a, you know, good 20, 30% speed boost. And then the rest of the tests, it was a mixed bag. Uh, there were a couple that were slower. Most of them were kind of a, a, just a around the same. So there are definitely tasks in this system that are faster, uh, especially if you are running a system with a 64-bit processor. That's an mm-hmm. Intel Core 2 Duo or a Xeon processor. Um, and if you've got a lot of RAM, I think you'll see some speed uh, boosts there too. So it is it is faster and has takes less disk, less disk space, and that's what Apple said all along. And I think that's been borne out. And I think that you know it's spotty. There are places that are a lot faster and other places where there really wasn't anything to be gained because this is all about finding inefficient parts of the system. Um, but over time, the programs that you use should also get faster because they've got this new Grand Central Dispatch system that basically lets uh, lets programmers change their programs to take better advantage of, of um, the multiple processor cores that are in every Mac today. Mm-hmm. And um, that it, it, you don't get much of that for free. There are a few things that they get for free that are like down in the system. And the Apple apps, like the, even the Finder, support that. And so they're faster out of the gate. But your favorite app from a third party might not have that right now, but you might see it in a, in a future update. And so that's a sort of a foundation that Snow Leopard is laying so that um, your favorite apps can get faster later but it is faster we'll be back with snow leopard after a message from our sponsor macworld super guides you spend every waking moment browsing macworld.com 
And when you find that impossible, you're crouched down with the latest issue of Macworld magazine. But there are those times when you want to dive deep into a particular subject. Digital music and video, Leopard, digital photography, Mac security, Mac basics, Mac gems or the iPhone, for example. Where to go? Macworld Super Guides. Macworld Super Guides pack dozens of helpful pages available as DRM-free PDF files on CD-ROM or as printed books. Macworld Podcast listeners can get a special discount on any Super Guide by going to www.macworld.com slash superguide hyphen offer. Check out the brand new Mac Gem Super Guide, an application-rich 186-page volume where we review and discuss over 240 software bargains that can help you communicate with the world, compose text, edit, publish, and print your photos, record and edit audio, organize your files, and customize your Mac. With our special offer link, you can have the PDF version of this invaluable guide for just $9.95. Macworld Super Guides, what you need to know. And now back to our discussion of Snow Leopard. Now, speaking of disk space, I noticed that when I ran Snow Leopard, I suddenly had a whole lot more storage. What happened? Oh, yes. Oh, it's the math. Mass Apple changed its math. Yeah. Um, what, and what so is mass two equals five? Nothing actually changed except the math. It, it's funny. And, 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 um, and Apple's math is right now. So, so back in the old day, I mean, this is, this is the story and, and, uh, the other guys on this call can correct me if I'm wrong because uh, they are uh, in some ways geekier about this, especially math. Dan Frakes is way geekier about math than I am. Huh. But um, it, it used to be – there was no commonly agreed upon definition for what a megabyte and a kilobyte and a gigabyte and a terabyte were. And there was this whole group of people who were very um, geeky computer people who said, well, what you do is you go up in, in exponents. And so you know, it's two, four – Two four eight six uh, what sixty four one twenty eight two fifty six five twelve ten twenty four so so a gigabyte is one thousand and twenty four kilobytes um, and then there was a whole other group of people who were like marketers and regular people who just said k that means thousand so uh, you know a k is a thousand bytes and a gigabyte is a thousand meg- megabytes and so on um, so long story short, um, finally a few years ago, some international standards body agreed that they would define those things um, and came up with different definitions. So there's a thing called a Gibby byte, which is um, 1,024 megabytes. And there's a thing called a gigabyte, which is which – is, oh, did I just do this in, in reverse? No, I, I never I never remember which one. And a gigabyte, <laughs> which is 1,000. 1,000 megabytes is a gigabyte, 1024 megabytes is a gibbybyte. It's crazy. Right, right. But, the, the, but what what Apple what that meant was that all of a sudden the thing that Apple had been calling a gigabyte all this time was now a gibbybyte, which is capital G lowercase i capital B. And rather than put change the GBs on their system to GIBs, they changed the math. So um, where most users would see that if, if you got info on a file and it said like um, 256,320, but then when you looked at how many K or megabytes or whatever that was, it wouldn't say 256. It would say like 243, which never made much sense. That's because it was dividing by 1024. Now it's dividing by 1,000. So your file that you used to think was 256 megs that's now 261 megs uh, has the same number of bytes, but um, they're calculating out what a meg or a gig is differently. 
So that's my I, that's my math I, story. I found something very. It shocked me the other day because a, a friend of mine gave me a flash drive so I could give him some files, and he plugged it in, and I opened it up. He was like, "Oh, it's brand new. I just took it out of the package." And I plugged it in, and yeah. it said eight gigabytes available. I'm like, "That's wait a second, exactly eight gigabytes? That never it happens." Used to be seven point two or whatever right. because it was dividing it by ten twenty four because all the marketers divide by a thousand because it lets them say something bigger. Right. So now it's all in agreement. Now it just says eight gigs. An eight gig drive is eight gigs. Uh, uh, you know, a hundred. Gig drive is 100 gigs. It's not 92.3. Let's talk about something that's likely to be controversial about Snow Leopard, and that is QuickTime 10 or X or whatever they're calling it. Um, (laughs) Yeah, it's going to come as a shock to a lot of people and, and maybe not to some others. Maybe they'll say, my, look how uncomplicated that is. So what's everyone's take on QuickTime X? iMovie 08. That's a, that's a, that's it. That's it, a pretty it, apt, it does for QuickTime what yeah. iMovie 08 did for iMovie HD. Some saw it as an advance, others saw it as it's, a retreat. It, it's slicker, simpler, and doesn't do nearly as much as it used to. Okay, so do do people who like using QuickTime Pro have any options? Yes, there's an optional install when you install Snow Leopard to install QuickTime 7, which has, well, it, it is QuickTime 7, so it has all the same things you had before. And if you have a QuickTime Pro key on your system, um, QuickTime Player 7 is retained on your system by default. They just move it to the utilities folder. But it's, if you use QuickTime Pro, it'll, it stays there. It's just hiding out um, in a safe house in the utilities <laughs> folder. <laughs> but you can Chris, still get a license if you want it, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you can. Chris, I think Apple's answer to your question is Final Cut. Right. It's yeah. They clearly yeah. For for those who haven't seen it yet, uh, if you recall in quick in ten five, there is an entire QuickTime system preferences panel that's gone. So there are no no features to be worried about in setting. And QuickTime Player itself in ten five had preferences. Those are gone. Uh, so essentially, well, and it had, yeah, and it's, it had it's export, a playback. Right. You're going to find export, that it looks right. It looks a lot like the iPhone interface for playing oh, yeah. back video. All the Almost complexity of the iPhone. <laughs> like it has the same hovering controls that come up or disappear depending on whether you move the mouse over the window. There's no bezel or anything like on the window. Uh, and it's got the same, almost the exact same trim interface that the iPhone 3GS uses for trimming yep. its videos. It's like it's almost yeah. identical. Right. Yeah, don't yeah. try to select something in the middle. Yeah. And that's not necessarily a bad thing overall, but it's it's what you lose, which, as Rob kind of um, kind of implied there, is that you used to get the QuickTime Player app, which was also a, you know it was limited, but it was a clever little audio and video editing utility that could you could add new codecs to it, you could export in different you know different uh, different codecs, different bit rates, uh, different sizes, and it had a lot of functionality for such a simple little utility, and that is all gone. Well, let's let's let me be a. a... Uh, this isn't quite being a devil devil's advocate. I don't know what whose advocate I am. You'll be the but, angels advocate. <laughs> yes, um, the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim um, advocates. The the let's set aside the QuickTime Pro stuff because you know there's a certain group of us who use QuickTime Pro, and I, I do think it's problematic. And I think that Apple's basically saying we don't want to provide that anymore. We're focused on what regular users want, which is playback or very simple trimming. Okay, fair enough. I don't agree. 
um, third-party opportunity. But let's just talk about the playback for a second. I think the playback experience in the new QuickTime player is terrible because it's it's what it's done is they've drawn they've dropped all the window chrome, so it's basically like a floating movie with nothing around it except you move your mouse over it. And when you move your mouse over it or press a, a key like to increase the volume, this bezel floats up over your movie that you're trying to watch. And uh, and then you can do stuff, and then you move your mouse out of the way, and eventually it fades back away. And the window bar, the same way, the window title bar doesn't go above the movie. It floats on top of the movie. So it's obscuring your video whenever you try to do something like fast forward or page through it or just make it a little bit louder. And it's terrible. It's a, it's a great full screen experience, but in a computer interface where you've got lots of windows and stuff, it's, it's a disaster. Right. I think that's a good example. It's that there, there are things where Apple has gained by innovating on the iPhone and bringing those to the Mac. This is one where they've done something on the iPhone and said, let's bring it to the Mac, but it's just not the same context. Like you said, you've got a big screen. You could have other menus. You could have other places for controls. There's no reason for it unless you're in full screen mode. There's no reason for all those things to be jammed on top of your movie. Yeah, there's plenty of room. And, and I actually don't like when you, when you let it go and it's just playing back. Um, it looks it like looks it's very weird. It's very, it like, mm-hmm. like it's it escaped from somewhere. Yeah. It's like well, that's not in a window. What what is it? Why is it there? G- you know, go back to your window. You well, I wonder movie. if part of this is also just you know them Apple pulling away from QuickTime Player as an app for playing your media and focusing on things like well, well, why aren't you watching it in iTunes then or something like that? I mean, maybe they're just sort of like well, QuickTime Player is not the not as central as it used to be to the media playing experience, right? Or they're extending that metaphor into QuickTime, figuring that's the way we do it everywhere else, so it's going to be in here too. Well, it almost looks like a quick a quick look window that stays on yeah. the screen all the time. Yeah. And I think Jason uh, said this too. You know, the title bar is not only annoying when you're in the movie, but it's almost more annoying when you're out of the movie because then it goes away and you have this window just floating there. It's like, what? What was that? Oh yeah. I mean, there's no other app I can think of where if you if you go away or select another window or even move your mouse off of it, it just the whole window Chrome just fades away. There's no other app that does that, and and it's weird. Yeah, it's it's very unlike anything else. You, you, you know, and it, some people might think, well, the black on white, uh, white on black look is kind of the Mac Pro apps look, but it's not that either. It's just it's different. Well, oh, listen, guys, when ten point seven rolls around and all the windows <laughs> lose all of their Chrome, you won't care anymore. <laughs> so, Rob, have you been digging around in plist files to see if there's some way to put back some kind of? I, I haven't gotten to that point yet, but I, I'm I'm very intrigued to see what the public response will be because I, I'm I'm kind of with Jason. I, I think more people use QuickTime. Not even necessarily the pro features, but just some of the the export features you get. Uh, you know, I've 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 walked relatives through stuff in QuickTime that they won't be able to do anymore unless they want. I don't know how many presets are in there now. Is it three? There, you have like three choices for export, I think, um, and you won't be able to control the codex. I, I don't know. It'll be interesting to see what people's reaction is. It's it is clearly now. You know, if it was misnamed before because it was QuickTime Player slash Editor slash Recorder, it's clearly now QuickTime Player, but it. Still does recording, I guess. Uh, but the edit stuff is just gone. Huh. So rich third-party opportunity. Exactly. Indeed. Okay, so let's go around the table and ask for one favorite new feature or tweak. And I'll start with Rob. <laughs> uh, just one. Um, you know, I think I'm going to go with the changes to it's sort of a double. But the services and the substitutions, sort of these these better ways of interacting with stuff 
things and getting things done. Uh, we didn't actually talk about substitutions, but it's sort of a light version of uh, text expander or type it for me. And it won't replace any of those apps, but I think it will open people's eyes to what they can do for you. And, and it will help productivity uh, and hopefully reduce typos on the forums. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, Dan Morin, a favorite feature or tweak? Uh, well, okay. I'll go with a pair of small ones that are connected, which are uh, the ability to put your date in. No, the you took mine. Block. No, no. <laughs> I mean, come on. It's been. It's I mean, been nine since years. OS nine, right? Like you could do that, and I mean, you still can't configure it if you don't like the little three-letter abbreviation for a month and the date. Then you're done. This um, is like the longest-awaited feature in all of OS ten. Nine years. I mean, I guess they just finally had the time to do it, right? They were so busy with more important things. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I moved on nice. to menu, calendar, clock, iCal. Yeah. I, used, I, I had one for a while, but it stopped working eventually, and I didn't like <laughs> any of the other ones. I'm picky about my date and time. But uh, connected to that time-wise is the uh, ability to automatically set your time zone based on your location, which on the one hand is kind of creepy, but on the other hand <laughs> is super awesome for someone like me who travels a decent amount and is always like, right. It's three hours in the past slash future now. Um, so that's nice, although it will make it difficult next time I have to, uh, you know, live blog something that's in another time zone and I have to trick the right. computer again. <laughs> that's a nice feature that um, third parties should be able to access too. Um, we should start seeing uh, apps that are able to do things like figure out that you've changed locations and kick off. Well, another good uh, another cool. good example based on um, something it took from my iPhone, which is the core location framework. Yeah. so that's that's awesome. Yeah, it's really cool. I think we'll see a lot of great. It's just yeah, using Wi-Fi, but yeah. Okay, uh, Dan Fricks. You mean besides the menu belt? Menu, uh... <laughs> yes. Well, there, there must be one more thing. <clears throat> well, I actually I I think that uh, the ability to to make your own keyboard shortcuts was a really underused feature in Leopard. I think most people just didn't realize. Uh, you could do it to the extent you could do it, and even if they did, they looked at that jumble of a mess that was the keyboard preference pane, um, and 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 it was just really confusing. And so I like the way they've redone the whole keyboard shortcuts in Snow Leopard. I think it makes it much more accessible and easier to use, and it's much clearer when your shortcuts are going to do what and in which applications. So I think that's a big – it's a little change, but I think it's, it's a big improvement in usability. Okay. Um, I'm going to – toss in exchange support because I've configured an exchange account for mail and for um, iCal and it works really well and it's very easy to set up. Um, in the past, when I was trying to use exchange with something like Entourage, it was a nightmare because it didn't work half the time anyway. But they, I think they got it right that it is as easy to set up on uh, a Mac now as it is on the iPhone and I, I congratulate them for getting around to this. Well, Chris, I'll add that Jason and Dan Morn and I have all been testing this as well through Macworld. And I think the fact that that I kind of forgot about it shows that it actually works. Yeah. I've been using it for a few weeks now for little things here and there. And even things that we kind of take for, that I take for granted now, which is that Dan Morn sends me a, an appointment request, you know, a, a, an event uh, invitation. And I click accept and it shows up in iCal and syncs to my phone and it works. I mean, it's it. That seems it's, like a. It's incredibly thing. seamless. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you just don't even know it's working. It really. They've done a great job. Yeah. Uh, and Jason, um, you remember when uh, OS ten first started coming out? Steve Jobs' favorite part of the demo is when you minimize a window and it has that like genie effect and it shoots into the dock and it becomes this little tiny thumbnail in the corner of the dock. Yeah. I I have a confession to make. I hate 
the minimizing feature in OS X. That yellow button, if if my Mac, if if, if yellow buttons on Windows could collect dust, mine would <laughs> would have been pecked out by a rat, and the, the the light bulb would be burnt out. I just I I never use that feature. So in Snow Leopard, optionally, so if you if you like that feature, um, you have horrible taste. And you can just keep oh, using it the way you are. Those are fighting words. But it, it, isn't this pundit showdown? Where's, where are my points? <laughs> but wait, if you hold down the shift key, it goes in slow motion. Yeah, I know. Exactly. So, so that's like torture so for Jason. There's a new option, which is to minimize your windows into the application icon in the dock. And what that means is they don't go down where you've already got folders and files and stacks and stuff like that, where it's just confusing about what. What is that down there? They don't go there. They they go and just disappear into your app icon. Um, and it's great because it gets them out of the way, but they're still there, and there are ways that you can see that they're there. In your window menu of your app, there's a little um, diamond next to minimize windows to tell you, oh, I've, you've got some other windows, but they're minimized. You can also right-click in the dock on the app, and it'll show that same menu with a list of windows with the minimized ones as a diamond. Or if you use Exposé, what ha- and, and you can use that either by the keyboard shortcut or by that new feature where you click and hold on an app icon in the dock, and it shows you all the windows from that app in Exposé. There's a little line on the screen if you have minimized windows um, toward the bottom, and below it in a row will be all of your minimized windows, and then you can click one, and, and uh, it just flies back up and it opens. And it's a much better approach to minimize windows than the old sort of unreadable thumbnail hiding with your folders and documents in the dock. So I'll, so play, devil's a- I'll play devil's advocate here and say that partial devil's advocate here. I, use, I do use it minimize to the dock sometimes, and I use it sort of – I use my dock as a kind of to-do list. So I minimize something there to get it out of the way but to remind me that it's still there to be handled. But I do look, like this new look, feature Look, there's a an lot. illegible uh, thumbnail in my dock. Yeah. That must mean something. <laughs> so I, 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 but I do like this new feature. My, my beef with it is that you can't have both at the same time. You can't say, okay, this window, I want to go to the dock. Oh, and there's, this window, there's a UI engineer at Apple yes. who's put your picture on the door. probably now. like, you know, hating me. You want now, your, wait, wait, you want your cake and eat it too? No, that- I want to be able to say this one goes to the dock on oh, the right hand side. It's a little minimized window. You so may need to start using it. Linux, Dan. And I want this one to go in, into the, the applications icon, the dock, because sometimes I want to hide it completely, and sometimes I want to just minimize it. So that's my beef with it. And of well, course, sometimes you be, feel like a nut. There's going to be like five people out there who agree with me on this, but I bet there'd be really vocal five. That's true. <laughs> that's true. Maybe there's a third party opportunity oh, there. Or a too. terminal command. Yeah, exactly. Mac OS 10 hints. Watch for it. Yeah. <laughs> but I do like that. I like getting them out because I, I would not use that feature specifically because I got enough stuff in my dock. I couldn't see what they were, so why bother? Okay, so what's the verdict on updating? At $29, is there any reason why someone currently running Leopard on an Intel Mac shouldn't update? They don't have $29? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, seriously, that, that's, about the, that's about the only argument I can come up with. I'm- Sell your Mac so you can afford the $29. <laughs> You're running a, like a Mac Mini with a core ready. solo processor and one gig of RAM, and y- you know you don't care. I mean, well, maybe. well. To be fair, there are there are things that don't work under Snow Leopard. You know, input managers are gone. A lot of yep. system hacks and enhancements are gone. A lot of menu extras no longer work. Uh, applications or utilities that put icons in the menu bar, and, and the purists My- will say, "Well, they shouldn't have worked anyway. Those are hacks." But the truth is, a lot of people use these things to be productive, and until they're updated. Those people might not want to upgrade because there are a lot of things that are add-ons for the system that Snow Leopard breaks. 
My, my understanding is that Apple's really taken this as an opportunity to prune a lot of dead wood out of the underpinnings of the system. And so there are things that are going away um, that you, like like Dan says, input managers is a good example. Uh, a lot of those break uh, in Snow Leopard. So, yeah, if there are a lot of options, things that I, I certainly felt like my first couple of days were like, whoa, wait, hold on, that doesn't work. You know, getting used to all the software I could not use. And it certainly slowed down my workflow for a couple, couple of days until I figured out ways around them. But, yeah, it is a, it is an up, it's significant enough an upgrade you're going to make to some changes. As I mentioned, hands-on coverage, including Jason's extensive review, begins today at Macworld.com and will continue, well, until we're done with it. So I'd like to thank Dan Frakes. Thank you, Chris. Rob Griffiths. Thank you, Chris. Dan Morin. Thanks, Chris. And Jason Snell. You're welcome. Oh, I mean, thanks, Chris. (laughs) And now back to me. And that wraps up this edition of the Macworld Podcast, sponsored by Macworld Superguides, what you need to know. I'd like to thank Dan Frakes, Rob Griffiths, Dan Morin, Jason Snell, and of course you for listening. If you have any comments or questions, feel free to drop us a line at podcast at macworld.com, or you can leave us a voicemail at 415-520-9761. This is Chris Breen reminding you that you can find more Apple, Mac, iPod, iPhone, Apple TV, and technology news, views, and information at macworld.com. Thanks very much for listening. See you next time.